it would have been flying around, diving down, catching fish. It probably would have been really rude and really loud, just like gulls and terns are. And so it would have chattered at you and snapping. It would have smelled kind of gross, smelled like fish. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. The ability to fly has evolved on three separate occasions among vertebrate animals. Most recent were bats, who figured out how to do so at least 50 million years ago. Before that were the birds, which, following the most recent of the Earth's five major mass extinction events, began to proliferate about 66 million years ago. But first were the pterosaurs, which emerged some 228 million years ago. And among the most recent of these was the ichthyornis, which lived about 95 to 83 million years ago. Today, we're joined by Yale paleontologist Barton John Buller, who talks with us about how the 2014 discovery of a Nicthyornis fossil buried in Kansas 95 million years ago revealed some unexpected insights into the minds and mouths of modern birds. Hi, my name's Anjan Buller. I'm assistant professor of geology and geophysics at Yale University and assistant curator of vertebrate paleontology and vertebrate zoology at the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. I guess I was one of those kids who grew up always interested in the natural world, um, in animals and things around us. I think part of that was actually, so I'm a second generation immigrant. My parents were both born in India. And when they eventually came to the U.S., we settled in the Midwest. And so I grew up in Ohio and in Kansas, and it was kind of a a Steven Spielberg childhood. I'd get home every day, and I'd go and knock on all of my friends' doors, and this big gaggle of us, mostly boys, would go off and ride our bikes all around town and play in backyards, and we'd end up at people's houses. uh, And whichever house we ended up at, the parents would feed us all. And um, And so spent a lot of time outside. And, and got to know the sort of suburban wilds of those places. And I think during this time, just fostered an easy interest in, in animals. Went to the library a lot. I was always a, a bookish kid. And that interest just continued sort of through my childhood, through my education. It might come as something of a surprise that birds, like egg-laying but cold-blooded lizards, snakes, and crocodiles, are also considered reptiles in modern classifications of animal life. Doug and I began our conversation by asking Anjan how it was that he first became interested in the early history of birds. Well, the thing about birds is that their bodies and their heads are just hugely modified from those of their reptilian antecedents, which are, of course, dinosaurs. And we all know the bird body uh, is designed for flight. And we know that in part because we, um, we eat them all the time. So we know we eat the, the breast, which is uh, one of the big flight muscles. And we all know also intuitively that bird heads are instantly recognizable. And if you look closely at a bird head, you see a few really distinctive features. In the back of the head, there's this really round, bulbous noggin, which contains a very enlarged brain compared to those of other reptiles. And indeed, birds are like, birds are like kind of dumb, but they're kind of smart compared to other reptiles. And some birds are really smart. Uh, so they got a big brain. They have really, really big eyes, um, which is not that separate from having a big brain because the eyes actually develop as part of the brain. And so those are two things they have. But of course, the most distinctive thing about the bird head is the beak. And it's the beak that has allowed birds to radiate into many, many, many 
disparate ecological niches. Darwin was inspired to uh, consider his theory of evolution by natural selection because of the beaks of finches. And so it's a very, very important organ. And it's a unique organ in that it's a total reorganization of the bird face. Uh, Most of the beak is composed of a single giant bone that in other vertebrates is very small and just occupies the tip of the snout. And that's a bone called the premaxilla. So there are all these transformations. Also, birds uh, can do this thing with their beaks. They use it as a precision grasping organ. And part of how they do that is that they use it. They use the upper and lower jaws like a pair of tweezers, which means that you have to move both the upper and the lower jaws to get a really precision grasp. And they can move their upper jaws with the upper beak independently of the rest of the head, which is a really weird thing. So they have a hinge in the middle of their skull. Uh, and so, so birds have all these unique features in their skulls. And before we investigated Ichthyornis, there were a lot of gaps in our understanding of how these features originated, the order in which they originated, and what their, their first forms looked like. And that's partially because the fossil record is really rich in terms of species, but many of the fossils that preserve the transition from a dinosaur-like head to a bird-like head are very heavily damaged and flattened. And although they preserve wonderful things, like many of these Chinese fossils, they preserve feathers and soft tissues, they don't preserve the detailed anatomy of the head. And it turns out that the stage at which these features are becoming modern is captured by Ichthyornis, this taxon that's been known from fossils since the middle of the 1800s. While not a dinosaur itself, Ichthyornis lived near the end of dinosaurs' reign, about 95 to 83 million years ago, long before humans' ancestors emerged. Ryan and I wondered what life in the Cretaceous period was probably like for the animal. Its name means fish bird, Ichthyornis, and its fossils are found in deposits made by uh, the Western Interior Seaway, which was a tongue of the ocean that extended onto the mainland of what would become the United States um, during the end of the time of the uh, dinosaurs, the Cretaceous. And during this time, the earth was very, very warm. The ice caps had melted, sea levels were very high. And so all of the Midwest of the US basically in Texas were covered by this warm, shallow seaway, including Kansas where I grew up. And in fact, most of the fossils of Ichthyornis are like me from Kansas. And so these were deposits that contain fish. They contain terrifying marine reptiles that are now fortunately extinct. A quick spoiler alert. If you've not yet seen the movie Jurassic World, you might want to skip the next 15 seconds or so. Like the giant mosasaurs, Jurassic World, the end of Jurassic World. The ultimate winner of the big dinosaur fight is a, is a lizard, actually, uh, the mosasaur. And so those were swimming around at the time. And so were plesiosaurs, these long-necked marine reptiles, and a bunch of other strange things. It was a scary time to go swimming uh, at the end of the Cretaceous. But go swimming, things did. And uh, among the things that were paddling around, flying around, were, was uh, 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 Ichthyornis. It was basically a seabird. If you looked at it from far away, you would think it looked like a gull or a tern today. It was a good flyer. We have have most of its body, and we can see from its body that it was pretty much done with becoming a bird. 
that it could fly more or less like modern birds. It had all of the distinctive features of the bodies of modern birds. And it would have been flying around, diving down, catching fish. It probably would have been really rude and really loud, just like gulls and terns are. And so it would have chattered at you and snapping. It would have smelled kind of gross, smelled like fish. It had a bit of a of a primordial herring hanging out of its mouth. But if you look closely at its mouth, you would have seen that this little primordial herring was speared on a beautiful row of dinosaur teeth because Ichthyornis hadn't yet lost its teeth. In a May 2018 interview about this study with Rebecca Hersher on NPR, Anjan remarked that Ichthyornis fills in an important gap, but of course everything that fills in a gap makes two more gaps on either side. Since Doug and I had both listened to the interview when it aired, we were curious to learn what he meant by this. In any taxon, like birds or like humans, that has so many unique features, um, there's, there's a long chain of transitional forms that show the gradual acquisition of these features. And once in a while, we find in the fossil record one of these forms. But of course, it's going to have whatever, half of the features of the modern group. And what you want to know then is... What happened after that and what happened before that? <laughs> and so how did the remaining features become assembled? And how did the ones that it has appear? In what order did they appear? And what did they look like at first before they started looking kind of more recognizable and modern? And so it was like that, for instance, when Archaeopteryx was discovered. And Archaeopteryx is the classic, probably the most famous fossil in the world. And that, that's often touted as the first bird. But the thing is that Archaeopteryx... <laughs> is in many ways it had it had feathered wings it could certainly be in the air and do something like flying but in in many ways it's just kind of a little dinosaur and we had a previous paper actually that showed that that birds are in many ways sort of juvenilized versions of dinosaurs and what archaeopteryx looks like for all the world is kind of a little baby version of one of the larger more ancestral dinosaurs uh and so that left open the question of how the features that Archaeopteryx already has became assembled. And so that's the gap on the one side. And that's a story that was told by, by others. But it also left open the question of how the remaining features of birds came about. And Archaeopteryx in particular, its head is very much a little dinosaur head, looks a little bit like a baby dinosaur head. And it's in that gap that was made by one of the two gaps that was made by Archaeopteryx, by Archaeopteryx having been dropped in the middle. Um, it's the gap between Archaeopteryx and modern birds that, that Ichthyornis in particular fills. On the right-hand side of the gap filled by Ichthyornis are modern birds. And, as we all know, birds today have no teeth. A 2014 study found that this may be because modern birds possess a gene that deactivates the formation of teeth. So we have some idea how birds came to evolve toothless beaks, but Ryan and I wondered why it was that they lost their teeth in the first place. People will tell you all kinds of stories. <laughs> as to how, as to how, uh, why, how, and why birds lost their teeth. I mean, I've heard things. I've heard things like, uh, "Oh, it, it lightened the head because you need to be light in order to fly." I was like, "These, these are trying, like they don't weigh that much for God's sake." And 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 things like storks with giant bills fly around too. I, so I don't think I don't. I honestly, I don't place a lot of stock in any of the modern hypotheses as to why why birds lost their teeth why is the hardest question to answer in the deep past and it's the question that that people who are serious about science 
find the most difficult to venture uh, uh, answers on. But I can tell you this. We know a few things about tooth loss. The first thing that we know is that when the asteroid hit and everything died and the world burned, there were at that time a few different groups of toothless birds that were the ancestors of the various groups of birds alive today, but they had already started to diversify. So there were a few different groups of them. And there were a number of groups of birds that had teeth, stem birds that had teeth. And so it wasn't like there was just a single species or a single taxon of toothless bird that was the ancestor of all modern birds, and it just happened to make it through by chance. No, it was that there was a selection of some kind. And when the extinction occurred, all of the various groups of stem birds that had teeth went extinct, and all of the toothless birds survived. My former postdoc, Dan Field, who's the, one, the co-first author with my graduate student, Mike Hansen of the Ichthyornis paper, he was the one who did that work. And so if you look at living birds, and especially the primitive groups of living birds, they all nest on the ground. So the trees burned, but those birds that nested on the ground and had habits like quail, for instance, were sort of groundfowl they may have survived because they weren't in the trees and they weren't nesting in the trees. Um, and they were used to living in a world where, uh, in a world of sort of dense underbrush and hiding, using their camouflage to sort of hide in burrows. And, and they were eating probably detritus, seeds and insects and things that would have survived the extinction. And that's the other big thing I was going to say. It may So it may have been that the ancestor of living birds were nesting on the ground and so they survived because the trees burned. And the birds with teeth, the stem birds with teeth, were perhaps more arboreal and were nesting in the trees and were related to the trees in some way. Anjan and his team's study is unique, not just because of what they found by analyzing the newly discovered Ichthyornis fossil, but also because of what was discovered about earlier specimens that were overlooked by previous researchers. Here, Anjan summarizes the new insights that came from his team's study. One thing we learned was that Ichthyornis captures the first beak. It captures the transition point to the modern avian beak. It had a long upper jaw filled with dinosaur-like teeth. The part of the jaw that was filled with teeth was much longer than had previously been expected. And we found that the first beak actually was just a little tiny pincer tip at the very end of the jaw, not the elongate grabbing and cutting organ that you see in, in every modern bird. Um, and that that pincer tip probably was used as a, as a, to, to grab or to peck or to manip manipulate things in the manner of a hand. And we also found that in concert with this transitional beak, there was a fully developed hinge in the middle of the jaw in, in the exact same way that modern birds do it. Ichthyornis could lift the upper jaw independently of the lower, which again supports the idea that it was doing this precision grip. And that's what the original beak was used for. Not for all the things that modern birds can do with the organ, but just for grabbing. And that it was still the teeth, which were very big and very dinosaurian, that did the holding and the processing uh, of the food. And so we've got a a transitional beak, a modern, what we call kinetic jaw movement system. This is all new information about how the transition happened. But also, because we had a complete beautiful brain case now, we could see that the brain was already basically a modern bird brain, a huge modern 
bird brain. And so the back of the head had already transformed and it was thinking like a bird and it was flying like a bird and it was doing things and living its life and perceiving the world like a bird with its giant eyes and its giant flight adapted brain. And so those were all things that we didn't know. We didn't know that the brain happened first, that the beak happened sort of in steps later. We didn't know what the first beak looked like. Now we knew from Ichthyornis. But the biggest surprise was actually something else. Stick around after this short break to find out what that was. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Anjan Buller. We had always assumed that there were a series of consequences from having a large brain. One of those was having large eyes. Another thing is that birds, as I said, they have they have a beautifully developed jaw apparatus that allows them to do a precision grip with the tip of their beaks. But their jaws actually aren't very strong. I was just in Texas and I was uh, feeding grackles, which are a native bird, uh, tortilla chips um, from my... Um, uh, from my my taco basket, and I was playing tug of war with this with this particularly plucky grackle, and it just you know I kept pulling the the chip out of its beak. I could see its beak opening, and it just couldn't hold its jaws shut because they have really weak, really small jaw muscles. Whereas dinosaurs, of course, as we know from Jurassic Park, had very very strong jaw muscles. And I had always assumed, and had written about in the past, that it was the it was the brain that's so huge that crowded out the jaw muscles and, and, and sort of forced them to be really small because there's a competition at the back of the skull for space between the jaw muscles and the brain. Well, it turns out that I was looking at Ichthyornis with my, with my um, postdoc, Dan, and he was rotating the brain case around and said, what in the world is this thing sticking out? Is this some weird, is this some other bone that's gotten stuck to the side of it? Like, what's going on? And we were staring at this forever. And eventually I said, oh my God, what we're looking at is this bony cage that surrounds the jaw muscles in dinosaurs, but that birds have lost. But in Ichthyornis, unexpectedly, and so unexpectedly that we weren't ready to see it, and so we didn't recognize it at first. In Ichthyornis, there's a really, really dinosaur-like architecture to the part of the head where the jaw muscles attach. And we that was totally surprising because we knew that Archaeopteryx had this, but we assumed that birds had lost that, stem birds had lost that very quickly after Archaeopteryx because every single other fossil along that line is damaged and they were broken off. And now when I go back, I can see where they were broken off. But basically, this thing's head, it had a giant bird brain, but its jaw-closing system was like velociraptors. And so it was really, really dinosaur-like in that way. So it really was this mosaic of dinosaur-like and bird-like features, and, and the way in which they were combined in this animal was, was, was quite surprising. Another fascinating aspect of Anjan's study is that the newly discovered Ichthyornis fossil, the first ever featuring a nearly complete skull, didn't have the rocky matrix surrounding it removed. 
Instead, the head of the ichthyornis was digitally reconstructed in three dimensions using computed tomography, or CT scanning, as Anjan explains next. It's micro CT scanning, which is very high resolution. And in micro CT scanning, you have to mount things very carefully so they don't move. But what a CT scanner is, is it's just an x-ray machine with a really, really, really expensive turntable in the middle of it and a really, really good x-ray source and a really good detector. And so you put the object on this platform and you take a whole bunch of x-rays while the object is rotating 360 degrees on this really precise platform. And you might take 3,000 or 4,000 of these individual images, x-ray images. And then what gets spat out is like I said, 3,000 TIFF files that are just, you'd recognize them as, as an x-ray, just like you get when you go to the doctor. And it's then the computational part, the computed tomography, that builds these individual raw projections into a 3D volumetric reconstruction. And the special thing about CT scanning, about x-ray scanning, is that, that that's different from something, a 3D imaging process like laser surface scanning, which is also very useful, or photogrammetry, which is also very useful, is that you don't just get the surface. You don't get a hollow shell. You get everything that's inside as well. And so I recently have acquired a CT scanner here at Yale. And, and, I, and I CT scan things at Harvard myself as well, too. So I, so I gained an appreciation for the art of this. I still cannot do it as well as Tim Rowe's team at Texas, which is why we still take all of our most important stuff to the University of Texas. But Tim Rowe and, and, and um, Matt Colbert and Jesse Maisano are the people down there who are true experts at this stuff. And no, you have to set it up. You have to think about what you're trying to look at and orient the block such that what you're trying to look at is centered and that it's, it's high enough resolution. You have to orient the block so that the x-rays are passing through as little stone as possible because you get a lot of attenuation. And so that means that if you have something that's long, you don't want to orient it so that the long axis at some point is going to face into the beam. You want to orient it vertically. As Anjan discussed, Ichthyornis had a much larger brain than its predecessors. Brian and I were curious what evolutionary advantages might be experienced by animals with larger brains. You know, the parts that get really big are really, really, really the parts that seem to be involved in sensory motor coordination and in... Uh, visual processing and all of these things speak very heavily to the idea that that this is something related to flight and to and to the various uh the various things that you need to do when you're flying and much of that is is seeing things really well and really quickly and much of it is also understanding all the parts of your body and controlling all the parts of your body and so birds can detect really subtle variations in airflow. They have to control every little bit of their skeleton that's still mobile. Birds have stiffened up a lot of their skeleton too. And they also, of course, like as we get sensations from every hair on our body, they get sensations from every feather. And every feather is individually controllable too. And so they have a lot coming in and they have a lot of instructions going out. And it's these channels that, that seem to be really, really hyper-developed in birds. But, you know, as a byproduct of that, the thing is, you get smart for one reason. But the cool thing about brain evolution in vertebrates is that when higher brain mass, relative brain mass, is selected for, you get all this excess processing power as well, right? Because flight is demanding, but it's really most demanding on takeoff and on landing. 
and in harsh weather. And when you're on the ground and birds are on the ground a lot of the time, and when you're doing other things or when you've, you know, zoned out, you've got this incredible processor and all this RAM, you know, that you're just not using. And that, that sort of excess stuff lets you be smart. <laughs> lets you be, lets you have an inner life and a complex sociality and, and lets the smartest birds like parrots, crows, and ravens be as smart as um, many primates. In addition to their interest in bones, paleontologists are also concerned with the soft tissue that connects, supports, or surrounds other parts inside the body. While bones fossilize, soft tissue doesn't, leaving researchers to have to infer its form and function. So Doug and I wanted to know what's so special about soft tissue to paleontologists anyhow. I'm a big proponent, actually, of the idea that the skeleton, instead of being sort of an entity unto itself, is more like connective tissue. And it's the connective tissue that forms at in the interstices among all of the primary tissues of the body. And I say this because it's actually the so-called soft tissues that form first in the embryo. Those are the things that are driving the shape of everything else. So for instance, in the head, the very first thing to form is the brain. And in the early embryonic head, there is nothing but a giant bubble of a brain and the primordial skin over it. And into the little gap between this brain bubble and the skin surrounding it, migrate all of these mobile amoeba-like cells. And those cells will eventually differentiate, will eventually divide and differentiate and form all of the rest of the structures of the head, including the skeleton. But they form around the brain and the eyes and the nose and the jaw muscles, which are already there. And when they form, they form as membranes that sort of separate and contain these structures. And it's in these membranes also that things that um, structures that that supply these primary constituents run too. So it's in these membranes, these connective tissue membranes that nerves and blood vessels form. And if you ever, if you've ever had medical education, I've taken human gross anatomy and you dissect a body, you find that there is an organization, blood vessels and nerves and things don't just run willy nilly through the body. They always run in these sheets of what we call fascia. And that's the, this, it's the, the gristly, you know, membranous part of stuff that we have to trim away when we're preparing a cut of meat. But that's actually really important stuff. And bone, all bone really is, is that it's a hardened version of that stuff. And so some subset of that membranous, stretchy stuff becomes mineralized. And that's what bone is. And so it's, it's really, it's not so much that we have to take into account the soft tissues. It's really that bone is just this late forming kind of in, intergressor in, uh, in a context that's entirely formed of the, of the softer tissues. And so you can't just build stories that are based on fossils without really, really having an idea of the way the soft tissues are organized. And so, in fact, one of the things that we're doing is trying to reconstruct the jaw muscles on some of these ancient birds to learn more about how their jaws operated. And that's part of uh, my student, Mike Hansen's dissertation. Given the cutting-edge nature of the research that Anjan engages in, Ryan and I were interested in learning if there is an idea which is prevalent in science that he believes is ready for retirement. When I entered Yale, the idea that's sort of put into 
young people's minds about studying biology is really that the whole world is cell and molecular biology. And that's really where all of the lucrative careers are. Um, and this is a product of kind of the, the, the molecular revolution in the middle of the 20th century, in which the proponents of a reductionist sort of a, a, a DNA-based view of life uh, really were hugely successful because of Watson and Crick's great discovery of the genetic code and sort of managed to stage a revolution and take over a lot of biology departments at universities and to push out the what they saw as older sciences of kind of the in the naturalistic fields where people described things and went outside and looked at how the world works from the top down instead of from the bottom up. And so and so long past time for retirement and still marching geriatrically on is the idea that there's a separation between the level of genes and molecules and the level of anatomy and morphology and on the applied side, surgery. This whole thing is a continuum. And genes themselves, nucleic acids, they are anatomy. There's structures within an organism. And some organisms, like viruses, are made up structurally in part of nucleic acids. And so we have to stop looking at biology as though there's one camp that works on the molecules. And there's another camp that works on the anatomy or the morphology or the function. And we have to stop looking at this when we do research and we think about research because there are all of these connecting threads and connecting scales. That division is, is, is artificial and it's based on our eyes. <laughs> it's based on our perception. There's one scale of things that we can see and touch and feel easily. And there's another we need tools to see and touch and feel. But there's every scale in between and all of those things evolve and all those things change. And we're not going to make advances in basic science and we're not going to make advances in medicine unless we begin to see the connections much more clearly. And I think many of those connections are going to be made by people who are working at the forefront of imaging technologies so that we can see the whole picture. In 1866, Yale University appointed Nathaniel Charles Marsh as a professor of paleontology, the first such professorship in the United States and only the second in the world at the time. Marsh also was the first to study and name the ichthyornis. As Anjan is also on faculty at Yale, also an assistant curator for the same museum, and also interested in ichthyornis, we asked what it's like serving in such an auspicious capacity. Ever since Marsh, Yale has been the place to come to study paleontology. Generation after generation after generation of paleontologists have been trained at Yale. And Yale has historically produced, from its graduate programs, the curators and the head professors at many, if not most, of the top paleontology programs in the world. It's just, it's just an extraordinary place to work. And it's, it's I mean, <laughs> humbling doesn't begin to doesn't begin to describe it. It's, um, man, I'm just a kid from the Midwest. And my grandfather, my grandfather came from India and, and worked in a lumber mill his whole life in order to bring the rest of the family over, worked alone for many years um, and eventually died from cancer from, from chemicals that, that he encountered in that plant. But um, um, he and, and my oldest uncle and the family, you know, we were, we're immigrants. We're immigrants. And look where we are now. I mean, this is, 
it's it's the American story, and it's like my whole life I've been so grateful for this country and for its institutions, and um, and now to be here, <laughs> to be here is just um, it's just it's just it's just an incredible thing, and and all I try to do is to work hard and to be good. <laughs> you know, and to, and to, and to, and to be a force for good and to pay it forward. It's a hell of a thing. It's a hell of a privilege to be, to be a teacher at all. And to, and to be a teacher at a place like this, this is really, really something special. That was Anjan Buller discussing the article, Complete Ichthyornis Skull Illuminates Mosaic Assembly of the Avian Head which he published with Dan Field and six other researchers on May 3, 2018, in the journal Nature. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org, along with bonus content and other material that he discussed during the episode. We'll be releasing our next episode of Parsing Science from the Podcast Movement Conference in Philadelphia. If you're attending, send us a message in the Podcast Movement app if you would like to meet up. Just search for Parsing Science, and you'll find Doug and me. If you're not attending, visit us on Twitter at Parsing Science for updates on what's happening at the event. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll continue our exploration of paleontology by talking with Armida Manofstada from Brown University. She'll talk with us about her research suggesting the pterosaurs probably didn't take flight like scientists have long thought that they did. If what we thought to be the case was true if it seemed like ligaments really would be preventing this bat like hip pose then that would be going against the prevailing opinion for about two centuries we hope that you'll join us again